Several years ago, I met a man named Joe. My meeting with Joe was not under the best circumstances, not the most exciting of occasions. I met Joe on the seventh floor of UAB as he was preparing to go at what was essentially a last ditch effort, a long shot surgery on a brain tumor that they had discovered on Joe. I was just going there to, to pray with Joe and to encourage Joe. I had never met him before. I was new to the church where I was serving and where Joe was a member. And I remember going and, and having to kind of walk around awkwardly around the, the waiting room. Are you Joe? Are you Joe? Are you Joe? And finally I hear Joe cry out, hey Cody, right here. And I look at this man and he is just beaming. I mean, he's got this grin on his face that was just electrifying. And that morning, his surgery ended up being delayed. And so Joe and I were, were, were there, and his sister was there too. And we just began to talk and tell stories. And Joe would tell this story, and I would be laughing. And then he would move over to this story, and I'm laughing. And then I would follow up with this story, and Joe would start laughing. His sister the whole time is fighting back tears. She's flown in from Manhattan and she's sitting there with her brother that is almost certainly going to die. And I could, look, I could watch Joe as he would look over at his sister Teresa and, and he would say something just offhanded, something funny. And he was just waiting to see if he could just make her smile. I went in there never having met Joe before in my life, a total stranger to me. And I left thinking he was one of the closest friends that I had in the world. Joe had a, 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 a joy about him that was inexplicable. He had a, a joy about him that was contagious. I remember going back to the office and saying, now tell me again what's going on with Joe. Tell me again how serious, are you sure? Joe didn't seem like a man on the verge of death. Joe seemed like a man that was full of life. And so a friendship was, was started. As I would come to, into worship on Sunday mornings, I would come down from working with the youth, and Joe sat on like the second row, all right? Let me just promise you, Joe was no back row Baptist, all right? And Joe would, would run up, and by this time he's wearing a, a bandana in church, you know, and, and he had all different colors, and he just took pride in that. He would run up, hey man, how's your week going? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And I'd talk to Joe about his week and man, we would just, we just had fun. Always laughing, always carrying on. I don't know that I ever saw Joe without a smile on his face. Well, as the tumor progressed in Joe, Joe became, uh, to, it began to be where Joe could come to church less and less. And so I began to visit Joe at his home. I was taken back the first time that I went to Joe's home because as I was driving to Joe's home, I was driving to the wrong side of town. And when I got there, Joe lived in what was a very, very modest mobile home on the wrong side of town. But as I knocked on the door, it was like he knew I was there and he jerks the door open and he throws his arms around me. See, Joe was a, a lifetime roofer. And Joe had lived hard, I, I came to find out. 
And so Joe began to tell me more and more of his story. And what, what it came to be is that the man that, that he worked for that, uh, that was the kind of owned the roofing company went to our church. And week in and week out, as Joe would go and he would live wild and live hard, this man would just continually tell him the gospel and would call him to come to faith in Jesus. Until eventually Joe got to the end of his rope and realized that his life was empty and Joe laid down his life and, brought, and, and surrendered it totally to Jesus Christ. And as Joe would say, nothing was ever the same again. And so I began to spend more time with Joe and I would go, honestly, this man is laying on his deathbed and I would go because he encouraged me. I would go to pray with him, but he would encourage me. Joe ultimately did pass on into the next life where I know he received a crown of unfading glory and I was asked by his family to preach the funeral. And I remember them telling us that we were gonna have the funeral at the church and thinking, man, I don't know about that. So we had a, a 2,000 seat auditorium at our church. And I thought, Joe's gonna, it's gonna look kind of, kind of puny. I remember getting dressed that morning. I got to the church really early and was going over the things that I was going to say at the funeral and, and just thinking of, of how is it that I can tell Joe's story? How is it that, that I can articulate what this man has meant to me just in the months that our friendship has grown? And I remember walking into the auditorium and looking out and the place seemed to me as though it was filled to capacity. And I was stunned. This was not a city councilman. This was not a prominent attorney. This was not even a teacher in our church. This was a humble roofer that lived on the wrong side of, a of town in a home that most of us could not imagine. And as I was there that day, I heard story after story about how Joe had told them about who Jesus was and about what Jesus had done for him and about what Jesus could do for them. I heard story after story of people just like me. I thought I was special. I thought Joe and I had this special thing going on. No, Joe had friends like that everywhere. Joe had friends with people that wore suits and ties and Joe had friends with people that didn't even own a suit and a tie. You know what I learned that day? That is greatness in the kingdom of God. That is greatness in the kingdom of God. When your life is not defined by what you leave behind, when your life is not defined by the car that you drive, by the clothes that you wear, by the house that you live in, when your life is not defined by the job that you hold, the status in the world that you possess, but instead when your life is defined by whether or not you bring glory to the name of Jesus and kindness into the lives of people. That's who Joe was. And that's what Joe taught me. And this morning, that is exactly what Jesus is teaching his disciples. And that's what Jesus is calling us to. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18 is actually a, an extended discourse in which Jesus is going to talk about the relationships that Christians are to have with one another. 
He's going to talk in great detail about how it is that we can coexist in the church with one another as fellow sinners, as people who give offense and take offense quite often. And so as we go into Matthew 18, we need to look at this through the lens of what is Jesus trying to teach me about how I am to love my brother? What is Jesus here aiming to teach me about how to love my sister? What is Jesus seeking to teach me about life inside of the kingdom of God, life inside of his own church? So we're going to see this right out of the gate here, beginning in verse 1. Would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together? Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. You may be seated. When we come into Matthew chapter 18... We're stepping right into the midst of a controversy among the disciples. They're having a discussion on the issue of greatness. And the discussion that they're having, having is not a philosophical one. They're not sitting here trying to say, well, what does Jesus mean by greatness? What is greatness really in God's kingdom? No, the conversation that is happening among the disciples is far more vain than that. They want to know their status in the kingdom. They, in fact, want to know that in Jesus' eyes, who is the greatest of all of the disciples? In Matthew, we know that he has begun to elevate Peter. And so perhaps there is a great deal of jealousy on, among the disciples as they begin to perceive that perhaps Peter is to be the leader of the disciples. Jesus himself has begun to tell them that he's going to suffer and to die. And so there is all the more urgency to know who is going to take his place when he leaves. When Jesus goes to the right hand of the Father, who is now going to lead the disciples? Who is going to be chief in the position of status among their group. And it's interesting how what they're basically saying here is Jesus, who measures up? How, how do we measure up one against another? Is John greater than Peter? Is Andrew greater than James? J Jesus, we want to know in your eyes, according to our devotedness, according to our faithfulness, according to what we bring to the table for you, who is it among us that you believe is the greatest? How do we measure up with one another? Now, if I'm honest with you, that is a conversation that I have in my own mind quite often. Quite often, I want to know how it is that I measure up. 
Quite often I will lay my life down beside another pastor that I know and say, Lord, do you believe that I'm more devout than he is? Do you believe that I'm a greater preacher than he is? Do you believe that I'm more passionate than he is? All the time I find in my own heart a spirit of competition, a spirit of rivalry in which I am wanting the Lord to look down on me and think, man, Cody, you are especially devout. You are especially passionate. You are especially useful to me. You are especially powerful for my name. Oh, Cody, what would I do in the kingdom of God without you there to be there for me? You ever find anything like that in you? Do you ever find that, anything like that in you? Maybe you begin to measure yourself by all the other mothers that you know. Maybe you measure yourself by the, all the other men and the way they're progressing through life, the way they're being promoted in their position. Maybe you think of it in the terms of the church and whether or not you get appreciated for all the sacrifices you make versus all the sacrifices that this person makes. Or, or maybe you want the Lord to notice that I sacrifice far greater than everyone else in the church would fall apart without me. Do you find yourself always coming in your own mind thinking, how do I measure up in the kingdom of God? How do I measure up so that God will think that I am particularly useful to him, so that God will think that I am particularly great in his kingdom? Because if you're like me and you find the tendency to have that argument with yourself, then I would beckon all of us to remember the gospel, to remember the gospel. For it is the gospel that says you can never measure up. That is why the cross exists. That is why Jesus came to earth. Because you and I could not measure up in the kingdom of God. And yet at the very same time, it is the gospel that says, but Jesus has measured up for you. Jesus has passed you through the judgment. Jesus has clothed you with everything you need to be accepted in the kingdom of God. So you can be neither prideful nor in despair. You can be neither consumed with yourself nor at the same time consumed with pity because of the gospel. Jesus humbles us and Jesus at the very same time exalts us in the kingdom of God. It's interesting what we see here with Jesus' response, it must have been totally stunning to the disciples on that day. The, the disciples are assuming that Jesus is going to come in and he's going to resolve the controversy. All right, Jesus is hurt. Mark tells us in his account that the disciples literally, the whole walk where they're going, have been having this argument with one another. And you can imagine that if you're Jesus, you're almost just fed up with it. And they're probably thinking in their minds when Jesus stops them to talk with them and to address them on this subject that Jesus is finally going to say, this guy is the greatest among them all. They must have been stunned when Jesus said that the content of your controversy is the pathway to hell. It would be far greater if this is what you think about greatness, if this is what you think about my glory, if this is what you think about yourself, if this is what you think about the kingdom of God, it would be far greater for you to tie a millstone around your neck and to jump in the sea of Galilee and be drowned there. Now, for all of us, we probably feel the same way the disciples felt that day. Like, Jesus, that feels a little bit like an overreaction, man. That seems a little heavy, Jesus. Uh, we just want to know kind of our standing in the kingdom. And now you're talking about us being drowned and gouging out eyes and cutting off arms. 
It's a little bit heavy. How did we go from greatness among the disciples to the fires of hell? And it feels that way because for us, the sin that we see here is not significant. The sin that we see here is, is common sin. But what we must understand is that for Jesus, this is the very essence of sin. This is the very oldest of sins. It is the sin of pride. See, what was it that caused Lucifer to be cast out of heaven with all of his fallen angels? It was the belief that he deserved God's glory and equality with God. In fact, it was pride. Why was it that Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden and condemned to death? It was because they believed that they should know what God knows, that they should be on equal footing with God. It was, in fact, pride. Why was the Tower of Babel, why were the people of Babel cursed and dispersed with many different languages so that they could not come back together? It was because they believed by their own wisdom and their own strength and their own ingenuity that they could get where God alone can be. It was pride. You see, I think that if we were to boil down every sin in your life to its atomic level, if, if we were to boil down every sin in your life to the very essence of what it is, that what we would find is that every sin in your life is put together by the particles of pride. You see, every single one of us know that we are prideful, don't we? And yet every single one of us worry about it very, very little. We know that we have pride. We know that it's a struggle. And yet it doesn't even seem that bad. This is just pride after all. Everybody has pride. Everybody battles with it. And so we take solace for us because of its prevalence among all of the people that we know. But in Christ, in Christ as a disciple of Jesus in the kingdom of God, there is no solace to be found for the prideful. There is no acceptability or justification or excuse for the pride that we find in our lives. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 16.5. It says, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. Homosexuality is an abomination to God. And so is pride. And so is pride. See, we hate homosexuality and we are very willing to beat our chest and to call it what it rightly is, an abomination before God. But when we look in the mirror and see pride and arrogance and cockiness, we immediately put it down as though it is no big deal. Yet the Bible says on equal footing with homosexuality itself, it is an abomination to God Almighty. See, we live in the culture of swag, don't we? Man, turn on a football game. Turn, go, go to a little league game, man. Somebody hits a bloop single and they're dancing around the bases. Somebody makes a catch they're supposed to catch and we're supposed to think that's a big deal. You go to a graduation speech. What is the whole deal? Always believe in your own greatness. Always believe you're going to be successful. 
Always believe and set your mind to it and your heart on it. And you are so wonderful. You are so competent. You are so mighty that whatever you believe will happen. In other words, believe your own press. Buy your own hype. In the 21st century with social media, every single one of us have become our own marketing strategist in which we try to sell ourselves and sell our greatness to the world. When I came to Iron City, within the first couple of months that I came here, a pastor of a fairly prominent church, what at one time was the fastest growing church in Alabama, gave me a call. Someone that I had always held in, in high esteem, and we're talking and I'm kind of hanging on every word and excited to hear from what he has to say. And then he says this. He says, every great pastor that I know is just a little bit cocky. And it undid me. I didn't say a word to him, but I just began, God, is that me? God, is that me? For pride is an abomination to you. God, is that me? For you oppose the proud. God, do not oppose me. God, let me pastor a small church in humility rather than be a cocky preacher of a mega church. You see, you ask somebody today, you seem a little prideful. Typically, they'll give it a smirk on their face and say, ah, just a little bit cocky. As though it's a virtue and not a vice. But brothers and sisters, it is an abomination to God. In 1 Peter 5, 5, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. Not competition with one another, not comparison with one another, not rivalry with one another. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, what we see in Jesus' response is the very revelation of the character of God. Jesus is looking to his disciples and he's saying, if you're going to be for yourself, I am going to be against you. If you're going to be for your glory and for your status and for your standing, I am going to oppose you. Do you realize that pride and swag and arrogance and cockiness invites the active opposition of God into your life. Do you realize that? Peter would say in chapter two that if a husband is harsh with his wife, that is, if a husband is so prideful that he believes that he can berate his wife for being inferior to him, that God will refuse to hear his prayers. Could it be that the reason that God hasn't answered your prayer is because God is standing in opposition to you? Could it be the reason that you don't have abiding, durable joy in your life is that God is standing op opposed to you because of the pridefulness and the entitlement found in your life? Could it be the reason that you have no contentment like we find in Philippians 4 because you have seen yourself as being entitled before God Almighty himself and God has said, I am standing against you. Church pride is nothing small. It is not justifiable. It is not excusable. 
Instead, Jesus teaches us that it, in fact, is damning. So he says, turn. He says, turn. He talks to his disciples and he's saying, he's saying, don't, don't go down the pathway of status. Don't walk down the roads of the world. Don't pursue greatness on the kingdoms of earth. No, turn away from it. The New American Standard, the KJV, a couple of other translations actually take that word turn and they translate it as be converted. Be converted. That is, that if you have taken on for your life kingdom values, if you have submitted your life to being a cross-centered, God-centered, Christ-exalting disciple, that the radical transformation that you're going to see in your life as you turn away from pride is just the same one as you turn away from your sin and begin to pursue Christ himself. So you're saying, if you are converted, if you are in fact my disciple, Turn away from all of this. Abandon your promotions and abandon your status and abandon your need for appreciation. Abandon your need for entitlement. Abandon your need to be recognized among your church and among your family and among your coworkers. Abandon all of that and only seek that I am recognized among them. See, it is a life-changing, reckless abandonment of earthly greatness that Christ is calling us to here. So this morning, if you would say, yes, there is pride in my life. Yes, I find myself continually judging others and taking offense to others because of the pride that is always there and always bubbling up and arguing in my mind. Brothers and sisters, turn away from it. Turn from your selfish ambition to be great in the world. Turn away from your desire to be great here. Turn away from your need to be recognized and appreciated. Turn away from any status that would disable you from doing lowly work here on earth. See, the humble people that I know, they can scrub toilets or they could preach to thousands and they would have just as much joy in their lives because they only want to bring Christ's glory. They only want his kingdom to be stronger. They only want his name to be more glorified than it was yesterday. If that's not you, turn. Turn as one converted. Turn as a disciple of Jesus away from yourself and toward him. What's interesting here is that Jesus, man, I'm still sweating. I put on a cooler shirt, cooler pants, cooler socks. I even got on cooler underwear and I'm still sweating up here. We're just getting real up here at the ICBC today. I told Megan that if I was, if I was hot today, I was shaving my head. So I don't know. You probably need to lay hands on me and my wife. What's cool here is that Jesus does not rebuke the pursuit of greatness itself here. He doesn't, he doesn't rebuke them for wanting to pursue greatness. No, instead, Jesus rebukes them for wanting to pursue the wrong type of greatness. He wants to, he's rebuking them of pursuing a, a greatness that is found and that is measurable by the people that they know here, by the things that they see here, pursuing greatness in the jobs that they have, greatness even in the church, having jobs that cause other people to, to think highly of them and to exalt them and to think that they are wonderful, sacrificing, God-fearing people. He's saying, stop pursuing greatness like that. 
But keep pursuing greatness. Instead, pursue greatness in the kingdom of God. Pursue greatness in a way that brings Christ glory, that brings him honor. What we see in Matthew 18 is Jesus redefining greatness for the disciples. Jesus bringing the disciples in so that they can understand what true greatness is. And so what Jesus does is really cool. Jesus is sitting there and if he's at Peter's house, it could have even been Peter's kid, but he looks over and he says, excuse me, little one, come here for a second. And the little one comes immediately. And Jesus picks him up and he, and he holds him before the brothers and he says, do you want to be great in my kingdom? Is that what you're looking for? Are you pursuing real greatness? Let me tell you what greatness looks like. Greatness looks like this child. Greatness looks like this little one. Jesus calls it. We don't even know the kid's name, which only further drives home the point that Jesus is making is that this kid is of no stature in the community. This, this kid has no status. Nobody is walking around and hoping that this kid shows up. No, this kid instead is totally dependent on the provision of others. This kid is totally dependent on his mom and his dad coming through for him if he is to have life. Jesus calls and what does the kid do? He submits and he calls. The kid does not think that, that he is particularly great or particularly wise. Instead, he thinks his mom and dad are awesome. Anybody in here have teenagers? Who in here has a teenager? I mean, don't you miss that? Don't you miss that? Man, Gracie Kate right now, she literally thinks I'm a superhero. She literally thinks it. She'll say, Dad, show me your muscles. You know, the... <laughs> so, you know, flash the old gun show a little bit. <laughs> and you know, every time, you know, she says, Dad, you've got Goliath muscles. Maleficent's coming into our house. He said, but dad, you'll kill her, won't you? I said, I'll shoot her in the face with a bazooka. <laughs> Take her down. She said, dad, you're not afraid of anything. Are you? I've never met something yet, baby. Nothing at all. She thinks that Megan can build a mansion out of straw, okay? M mom, mom can fix it. You know, like she could have like, a piece of jewelry that has totally and utterly disintegrated. Oh, mama fix it, dad. It's, don't, don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. She's at this place in her life where she just thinks we're the greatest thing in the world. And so she gets scared. And what does she do? She runs to her daddy and her daddy picks her up. And immediately she says, she reminds herself, dad, you're not afraid though, are you? She doesn't know what to do. She's confused about the situation that she finds herself in. She feels sad or sick. And what does she do? She runs to her mom and her mom picks her up and she says, mom, I'm sad. And mom, I'm scared. Mom, I don't feel good. And her mom comforts her and makes her feel better. She knows that she can't do those things herself. She knows that that is not within her. And so she looks beyond herself, humbling herself in seeking her parents. See, that is the picture of what Christ is calling his disciples to. Christ is calling his disciples saying, if you want to be great, you must be dependent upon me and submissive to me. 
If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, then you must know that I am the provider of all things. I am the giver of all strength. I am the giver of all grace. You have none of that inside of you. You have none of that within you. All of that comes from me. So if you are going to be my disciple, if you are going to exalt me in your life, if you are going to be a part of my kingdom, come, humble yourself, submit to me as my child, and let me exalt you in the kingdom. See, that's the difference in earthly greatness and kingdom greatness. You wanna know somebody believes in earthly greatness? Ask them their story. Ask them their story. Because a lot of stories go just like this. Man, I had to overcome all kinds of obstacles in my life. I didn't have a dad there. I had a mom that was hardly around and was mean-spirited. We came from poverty. We had nothing at all to count whatsoever. I had no advantages in school, no advantages in college, overcame dyslexia. My first job didn't appreciate me and fired me. But man, I just kept on persevering. I refused to quit. I found the strength from within and overcame all obstacles so that now you see the man or the woman that is before you. That's somebody that believes in earthly greatness. That's somebody that has to prove their worth to you. That's somebody that has to prove their strength to you. But somebody that believes in kingdom greatness tells this story. I used to think I was strong. I used to think I was able. I used to think I was smart enough. I used to think I could overcome all of the obstacles in my life. I used to think I could let the good outweigh the bad. I used to think, I used to think, I used to think, but God. But now I know that God took me and I was a wretch coming apart at the seams, unraveling in my life. And then I met Jesus and Jesus has given me grace and Jesus has given me strength and Jesus has overcome my obstacles. Jesus has overcome my wickedness. Jesus has made my life not just bearable, but joyful. So the man or the woman that you see before me has nothing to do with me and everything to do with the Lord Jesus. Is your story about self-sufficiency? Or is it about Christ? Is your greatness found in the world? Or is your greatness found in the kingdom? How can you know if you're humble? Whose greatness matters to you? How can you know if you're humble? Whose greatness matters to you? See, humble people are willing to teach children and never be thanked for it and never be properly appreciated for it and never be noticed for it simply because they want the kids to know Christ. It wasn't about them. It's not about their recognition. And by God's grace, I hope we do recognize you here. And I hope we do encourage you here. But that's not the motivation. The motivation is the glory of Jesus. Humble people are people that, that can preach or scrub toilets for the glory of God and they won't begrudge either one. Because it is for the greatness of Christ, not their own greatness. Humble people don't care if they live in a mobile home like Joe or in a nice neighborhood. It's not about them. 
Whatever comes, it is the Lord's provision. But is it about Christ's greatness? Do you spend all of your life feeling underappreciated and unacknowledged? Or do you spend all of your life thinking, Jesus, how did I get so much? Jesus, how have you been so kind to me? Jesus, why did you notice me at all? Whose greatness matters to you? Your own or Christ? I told you in the beginning that in Matthew 18, it's all about life inside of the community of believers. Life among the brothers and sisters. And what Jesus does here is as he goes past the individual sin of pride, he moves on to the collective problem with it. Jesus looks to his disciples as they each want to say that they are the greatest. And he says, not only are you prideful, but you don't realize this isn't just about you. This is about the broader kingdom. This is about your brothers. This is about your sisters. That your pride doesn't just destroy you. Your pride destroys your brother. Your pride destroys your sister. Your pride destroys the church that I'm building. You see, one of the greatest lies that we can believe about our pride and our sin is that it only affects us. Some of you know firsthand that your dad's sin affected you. Some of you know firsthand that your sin affected your children. Some of you know firsthand how your sin affected the life of our church. How your sin impacted another brother or another sister. But for too many of us, we live in total disconnection. We turn on the computer and stare at pornography, believing we are only hurting ourselves. We live every day with swag and arrogance, believing that if we are in sin, it is only our problem. But brothers and sisters, I am telling you that sin is unraveling our families and killing our churches. That pride, pride is undoing what God desires to do in us. Pride something that we feel okay with, something that we justify and excuse is a poison that will kill our church. I don't know how much more strongly to say that. Pride is a poison that will kill our church. And if we do not put it to death, it will certainly put us to death. This is one of the strongest warnings we get in all of the scripture where Jesus says, if this is damaging your brother, if you keep one of these little ones, and when he's talking about little ones, we're going to see this even more in the weeks ahead. He's not just talking about kids. He's talking about the children of God. Those that have placed their faith in him. Those that are a part of his flock. And so he says, if you cause one of these little ones to stumble in my kingdom, jump in the lake, man. Jump in the lake. That you are inviting the fires of hell into your life. How can pride kill our church? It's a bold statement. It's because the truest mark of humility is to believe others are greater than yourself. This is what Philippians 4 teaches us, isn't it? Philippians 4, no, Philippians 2 teaches us that we are to see others as more significant than ourselves. In other words, our lives are not inwardly focused, they are outwardly focused. 
Our lives are not all about us, all about what we want, all about what is convenient for us, all about what is comfortable for us, all about what is enjoyable for us. Instead, our lives are outwardly focused. How do we reach our community? How do we bring new people into the fellowship of the body? How is it that we can love one another and love our neighbor as ourselves? How can we look beyond ourselves to the, so that we can bring ultimate glory to the one that is far greater than ourselves? And I'm telling you, that inwardly focused churches, God is pleased to let die. God is pleased to let die. If our teaching and our serving and our working and our listening and our attending become about what we want and about what we like and about what we enjoy and about what we expect and about what is convenient for us, and not about what is good for the body, good for the church, good for the kingdom of God, good for the glory of Christ. God will kill our church. He will kill it. Perhaps people will still come. Perhaps the attendance will be big. But the Spirit of God will withdraw from this place. The presence of God will not be found here and we will not encounter him on a week in, week out basis. If we had 5,000 people here and that described our church and our church was, was a group of consumers, oh, how we would be the lowest in the kingdom of God. Oh, how we would be the lowest in the kingdom of God if we are in the kingdom of God at all. But if we are no more than what we have right here and we go after Christ with a reckless abandonment, abandoning the passions of the world, abandoning the statuses of the world and we go into our community and we plead with our community to come to Christ and we live out a self-denying, self-sacrificing life before them, loving one another recklessly and we go to the nations doing whatever it takes. If it's no more than this, we can be great in the kingdom of God. This morning I have pleaded with God that he would raise up five. That he would raise up five here at Iron City Baptist Church that pursued this kind of greatness. That there would be five this morning that would turn away from their pride, turn away from their self-centeredness, turn away from their self-sufficiency and throw themselves at Christ and say, Christ, use me however, wherever to do whatever for the glory of your name. Five. If we had five that would raise up and pursue this kind of greatness, we would know revival here. We would know revival here. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer.